You can open your Bibles to Ruth chapter four. That's the text we'll be in this morning. And as Mike said, I'm, I'm coming off some sickness, so if I, uh, if I just end abruptly or make this really short, it's to your benefit. And uh, I just can't make it through, but I'm gonna try to keep breathing while we do this, okay? Uh, well, Ruth chapter four is the text that we're in. And while you're turning there, I do wanna say I love how uh, these weeks fall in terms of uh, Christmas Eve being on a Sunday morning, getting to celebrate uh, the Lord's birth on, uh, on the Lord's day. And also at the same time on uh, New Year's Eve uh, coming together, because although it's just really another uh, uh, you know, page in the, in the calendar, another turning of the page, uh, just another day of the week, um, in a lot of ways, it is a symbol of a, of a fresh start. And so my encouragement to you is to, is to take advantage of that opportunity, uh, to think through how you might want to change your life, how the Lord wants to change your life, how it might be uh, something beneficial for you to even think through what are the ways in which you'd like to grow this year and what kind of commitments do you want to make spiritually. That would be a good thing to think about. Uh, once again, even though it's just a turning of the page, it's just another day of the week, it does represent a time in which people can start fresh, and we take it that way um, as we look at our calendar, our annual calendar. So, so I encourage you, and many of you have been doing that. We've been talking about that individually, but my encouragement to you is to think about how the Lord might want to grow you this year. Uh, what kind of things maybe do you want to stop doing? starting tomorrow? Uh, what kind of things do you want to start doing? Uh, maybe some things like I've never read through the entire Bible. Well, uh, we do have a Bible reading plan um, for this next year. And make it your goal, make it your commitment to get through the entire, uh, uh, the entire Bible this year. Uh, or maybe there's some habits that just take up way too much of your time. Uh, maybe there's some things that make you less godly, more distracted, uh, sometimes it's not even sinful things. It's just things that distract us from what's most important. And this would be a good time for you to think through how you can start fresh and, and uh, employ some things in your life. And so that's my encouragement to you. Another thing I would like to say is that this will be the last Sunday that uh, Omri and his team, Grace Bible, will be with us. So we want to give them a round of applause and say thank you um, for being with us. Um, and, and, and I want to encourage you to just see them after service and give them a hug and shake their hand. They're about to embark on something that's a little bit scary. Uh, they don't know if anyone's going to show up next Sunday except them. And uh, I remember being there and, uh, and I remember when Josh, you know, when we planted the church in Slidell and Josh was at that point, um, not knowing who else will be there besides his team. Uh, but just an encouragement. They've told me just about how many people they've met. I think they have names of upwards of 50 people of, uh, on, their, on their streets, neighbors surrounding the area, uh, doing cookouts in their backyard and starting to meet people. And so just encourage them, uh, pray for them. And uh, as you continue to think about it, reach out to them and pray for them as well. We're glad you guys have been with us and, um, and we're praying for you. And so uh, now as we get into this, I wanna read this last chapter of Ruth and uh, we'll finish this book this morning. And so let's pray. Um, even before we read, I want God to just do a, a great work in these words here. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this great book that we've been able to walk through. Thank you for all the lessons that you've taught us through it. We pray by your mercy and by your grace that you'd encourage us in it this morning, change us by your spirit. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter four, starting in verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders and of the city and uh, of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, all, now, now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has, who is is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. The name, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. What an incredible chapter. And what we're seeing in this chapter in particular is the culmination of God's redemptive work in the life of this family. That's what we're seeing here. This is the culmination, the climax of God's redemptive work in and through the life of this family. This is the climax of the entire book. This is the culmination. This is everything you've been waiting for, everything you've been hoping for, everything that you've been hanging on to the edge of your seat for. Now, this is what you hoped would happen. Uh, in the midst of this, we're questioning how this is actually going to turn out. You got Mr. So-and-so uh, willing to redeem it. And so you're kind of like, wait a second, this might not turn out the way I want. But by the end, we see that God's plan and what our hope is comes to fruition. And so I've entitled this message, Redemption Realized. Redemption Realized. Because there was the possibility. And now we see it come to pass. If you remember, starting in chapter one, we, we faced unthinkable tragedy. Uh, we faced an, a tragedy in a family that goes beyond anything that most of us have ever experienced. Uh, when we see this, we know, remember, this is a historic narrative. This happened to real people in real life. And so though you might think, hey, this is just a story, I can kind of separate myself from the situation. This is a real story. And the death of a husband and two sons really took place. Unthinkable tragedy. And we had to swim through some questions in those moments. Uh, what was God's involvement here? What was his plan? What was he doing? Why was he doing it? And, and how would this thing turn out? Uh, was God involved? Or is this just all natural chance events? Is God behind my suffering? Or is he taking a break? And I'm just a subject uh, I'm just subject to circumstances. Well, we see a key verse in chapter one, and that's the, at the end in verse 22. At the end of it, it says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And the author leaves us at the end of chapter one with an idea that God is working. His timing is perfect. He's doing this great work. If we know anything about the book at that point, we realize that God is setting this family up to do a work in their lives. And so we're ending chapter one with the hope of God being at work. Things changed. Decisions were made, but God was indeed at work. And you can take confidence in that if you are in Christ. God is at work in your life. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is by accident. There are no accidents. God is working. He's either sovereign or he's not. He's in charge and he's working in your life for your good, even when you don't think that he is. So God's at work. And what is he at work doing? Well, we see as time goes on here in chapter two, that he's at work in his, by his providence, this hiddenness of God. He's sovereign and he's working his plan out in the world. That's providence. And we see this providence come through the provision. Uh, this family needed things 
They needed food. They needed land. They needed uh, money. They needed resources. They needed care. There's provision. And really, there's protection. And God's working this bigger plan. And so we see this begin to unfold in chapter two, that these details are being worked out for the good of this family. And God is behind it. He just so happens to come, uh, 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 Ruth does, to the field of Boaz. And you begin to see this plan unfold. There's a, a, a perfect setup. And so we see the climax of chapter two in verse 20. And really it says this in chapter 20, uh, verse 20 of chapter two, uh, he, Naomi says, may he be blessed by the Lord, speaking of the Lord, saying his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And so in chapter two, what we realize is that God has not forsaken this family. And that's the main point. Uh, though they have suffered greatly, we see this provision begin to unfold. And the the, the conclusion that we come to in chapter two is that God has not forsaken his people. God has not forsaken them. And we can take great hope in that. The author wants you to learn that, that although tragedy and sorrow might come, trial might come, and you're wondering if God is involved, his promise to not forsake his people stands. And if you are in Christ, he is committed to you. He is committed to your life. You may not know what he's doing, but he's doing something. And he's doing a great work to make you more like Christ and to draw you near to himself. And so the author wants you to learn this. And though you might suffer bumps in the road, you begin to see that God is at work and you realize oftentimes, not till after the fact, that he's being faithful to you, that he's being kind to you, that he's being good to you by his own initiative because of his own faithfulness. And as chapter three moves on, we begin to see how good, how good God really is, how far this goodness really goes. And we see in chapter uh, three, verse nine, that Ruth asks Boaz to spread his wings over her, to spread his wings over her, to call, uh, to, to bring her into his loving care and affection. And we see that at the end of the chapter in verse 18, we see that this is a possibility, but we're left waiting. We're left waiting as to how far this redeeming work of God would go in the lives of these people. And as we begin to take this picture and we kind of zoom out a little bit, along the way throughout this entire narrative, we really can narrow our focus almost um, in an encouraging way on, on the characters. As, as we see God doing this great work, we also see the lives of these characters. We see the characters are obedient. We see that they're righteous. We see that they are loving and selfless and caring. We see these characters wait on God, trust God, look to God, care for one another. And we see this selflessness, and we see these, really, even these gender roles in what they're supposed to look like. The man doing his job, taking responsibility in the way that he should, and the women doing the same. And so now, as we come to this great climax in chapter four, and we see this ultimate 
and permanent redemption take place, and it's realized, and the lives of these people will never be the same. We see God restore this family. We see God working. We see his ultimate plan of redemption at the end. We realize that this whole time, God was faithfully redeeming and restoring the lives of his people, and he's going to continue to do so throughout the world. And I want you to take heart as we move into this chapter, that God is still faithfully redeeming and restoring the lives of his people. God is working in your life and God is restoring and redeeming. If you are one of his, if you are in Christ, he is redeeming your life. He is restoring you. Everything that he's bringing you through is for the purpose of your restoration and redemption. And so maybe right now your life feels more like chaos and confusion than it does uh, in any regard have any clarity to it. Uh, Maybe you feel like you're regressing in your spirituality and you're trying to submit to God, but you don't know what in the world he's doing in your life. Uh, Maybe it feels more like regression than progression most of the time. Uh, Maybe you're waiting and you have an overwhelming sense that you're not in control of your life and you're just waiting on God Maybe you have an uncertain future. You have no idea what's in front of you and you are scared lifeless. And maybe, maybe things are just normal and you're hopeful and God is at work and you're just kind of keeping in step with him. Either way, I want you to leave here today knowing that God is working in your life. He is restoring your life, redeeming your life. He's committed to you. And not only has he brought you to salvation in Christ, but he's committed to every detail of your life. He is committed to to working in every area, every facet, and and making you more like his son. And he's redeeming and restoring your life. It might look different for everyone, and, and your life might not be fully restored, redeemed in some areas until the day in which you meet him in heaven. But he is working, and he is committed, and he is fully resolved, and he cares about the details of your life. But I want you to look at this chapter as well, and I want you to leave with this as we walk through it, that it matters how you act in the midst of God working in your life. It matters how you live. It matters how you respond to God. It matters how you treat people. Um, Oftentimes, um, we take matters into our own hands, and we can become pretty manipulative. And we can take matters into our own hands in such a way that we believe that we're in control of the situation. And we might not think that anybody really notices. And everybody around us probably does. And what we are called to do is we are called to submit. We are called to trust God as he does his sovereign work in our lives. And we are called to trust him with the outcome. So it matters how you live, that you would be submitted that you would be patient, that you would have integrity, and that you would be obedient as you trust God's work in your life. So as we move into this, we're going to really just see some some simple things here, some big picture things, and learn some specific principles along the way. But we're going to see the redemption. First of all, we're going to see the redemption here in verses 1 through 10. The redemption. This is going to lead to the restoration. I don't know what's going on with our screens back there, but this is going to lead to the restoration in verses 11 through 17.
the restoration. And then we're going to see just God's, I want us to see God's faithfulness at the end in verses 18 through 22. So redemption, official redemption leading to this restoration. And we see God's great faithfulness summed up really at the end. So let's move into this as we first now look at this great work of redemption. We begin in chapter four, verse one, and we see that Boaz has gone up to the gate. Remember, the women now are waiting to see what Boaz is going to do. Um, they're confident in his character. Remember this? At the end of chapter three, uh, Naomi tells Ruth, wait, my daughter, uh, till you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi's confident in Boaz's character. And he know, she, she knows that Boaz is going to seek to resolve this matter. And we're left with this, this waiting. We're left with this waiting at the end of chapter three. And really, this is a, a practical lesson for Naomi and Ruth at this point. I mean, do you like to wait? Do you like to wait to see what God is going to do in a situation that you're unsure about? Waiting is oftentimes the most sanctifying, isn't it? You want to take matters into your own hands. You'd like things to move a little faster. And I think about all the areas of waiting in my life currently. I feel like I'm waiting on a God to do a hundred things. And, uh, and it really makes you feel like he's in control and you're not. And it causes you to trust him in ways that you wouldn't if he just gave you what you wanted right away. And so there's this waiting that's taking place and there's this sanctifying work that's taking place. But we also see this responsibility that's taking place. Boaz is a man of responsibility. Uh, he, he, he's really, as the women are learning to trust God in this moment, Boaz is a man who is proactive. He is a man who's decisive. Uh, he, he is a man who's getting up and being about the work. Boaz is, is doing what he said he would do. And so we really see two character qualities that we can learn from in this situation. And one is how to trust and wait on the Lord. And the other is how to be responsible and stick to our word. And so here we see this taking place. So Boaz goes up to the gate. And I love this because at the end of verse one, well, really in the middle of it, we see this word again, behold. Remember the last time we used that word? When Boaz came onto the scene in the field. Remember this? Ruth just happened to come across the field of Boaz and behold, Boaz shows up as if the author is trying to point you to providence, not chance. Well, once again, he goes to the gate to sit down and behold, the redeemer he's aiming to talk to walks by. God is at work here. He's at work behind the scenes in a way in which the author is pointing us to. And so the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken comes by and Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Boaz, it must have been a pretty respected man because all he tells him to do is, hey, come on over here, sit down. And the man does what he says. 
right? And we know that Boaz is a respected man. But what's interesting here is, is really the name in which uh, this man is now given. And what we see here is really translated to, and I've been using it really this whole series, Mr. So-and-so. That's the name, Mr. So-and-so. We know that Boaz probably knew his name, but the way in which it's communicated here is equivalent to Mr. So-and-so. The author is making a point here that this man is serving as a, a bit of a foil to Boaz. Here's Boaz, who's gonna be a man of integrity and a man who holds to his word. And, and then here's Mr. So-and-so who pales in comparison to Boaz, right? And, and what's important here is we see, and we're gonna see this unfold, is that really Boaz is a man who is caring for others. And Mr. So-and-so we'll see is a man who really cares for himself. And I think it's important for us to recognize here that when we care for others, our legacy, our, our legacy is really preserved. And, and it's the opposite of how we normally think. We think if we build our own kingdom, if we look out for ourselves, if we care about our own selves, we'll preserve and build up our legacy in the eyes of other people. And it's really the exact opposite. If you spend your life caring for and serving others, your legacy will go far beyond your life. And that's how it works. It's the exact opposite as to how we normally treat it. Mr. So-and-so's name will forever be remembered as what? Mr. So-and-so. And Boaz will be mentioned on a lot of different fronts in the scriptures as a man of integrity and godliness. Spend your life serving other people. That's how your legacy will be preserved. And so he says to Mr. So-and-so, sit down here. And the man turns aside and sits down. And then Boaz takes 10 men of the elders of the city and says the same thing to them, and they sit down. Now, 10 is important here because 10 will, it represents a completeness. And also it will be used in the future as, uh, as a really what, would be required for the leadership of the synagogue, 10 elders, this plurality of elders. And so these men sit down, but what's interesting here once again is that Boaz speaks to them and they listen. Uh, Boaz again is a respected man. And what's also interesting here is that Boaz is not trying to manipulate this situation. Boaz wants to marry Ruth, doesn't he? He wants things to work out exactly like Ruth wants them to work out and exactly as he wants them to work out. Now, if you're doing that, you, you don't really want the 10 elders to sit down. You don't want to give Mr. So-and-so a chance. You want to take matters into your own hands, manipulate the situation, say things in such a way that you, you don't think that they're really catching on to what you're saying and they totally are. And you want to take matters into your own hands so you get exactly what, what you want. Well, Boaz is not doing that here. Boaz is going to totally trust God with the situation. So he tells these elders to sit down because there must be a witness, witnessing council. And, and he tells this so, Mr. So-and-so to sit down because Mr. So-and-so has the first right to refusal, of refusal. And so Boaz here is acting in, with integrity 
and he's trusting God with the situation. And so these men turn aside. The elders sit down. Mr. So-and-so sits down. In verse three, Boaz says to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, this is interesting here because really this is the first time that the land is even brought up. This is the first time that it's even mentioned. Uh, what, why is this even important? Well, what the author wanted us to see before is the real redemption is focused on Ruth and, and Naomi. But at the same time, that's going to have to come through this land. And so we know the land is not the point. The people are the point. Uh, but, but at the same time, this is the route in which Naomi and Ruth would be restored. That someone would buy the land that they can't keep up with financially and that they would be then taken care of. And Ruth, the, the, the Moabite widow, would be, would be brought into the fold with this land and be cared for. And the name of her deceased husband would be carried on. And so this is the route in which this is going to take place. The parcel of land that Naomi has decided to sell is what he's saying. And you're the closest relative, so you have the first right of refusal. So he says in verse four, I thought I would tell you of this. And I thought I would say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. There's no manipulation here, is there? He, he's giving this man the option. He's the first, he, he has the first option. He, he is the closest kin to be able to, 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 to buy this land and and Boaz is giving him the option to do so. And to do so in the presence of elders and to solidify it. And this really points to his care for Ruth more than his care for himself. Once again, pointing to his integrity, he says, if you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if not, if you will not redeem it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. He's saying, if you're going to take it, take it. This, this is the option. Naomi's selling it. She's decided. Uh, she can't keep up with it. And, and really, this thing is probably, at this point, useless, overgrown. And this man gets to, to have this land that now becomes his. He gets to profit off of it. And what's important is, at this point, this man either doesn't know about or is not thinking about Ruth. And why is that important? Well, it's important because what happens if this man buys the land at this point is that he gets to inherit all of its benefits and, and, and his own children, who he may have at this point, get to inherit all of the benefits of this land. And so at this point, this is a pretty good deal. I'm going to buy this land and it's probably going to be pretty cheap. Naomi is past uh, childbearing years. So I don't have to worry about having a child with Naomi, perpetuating any kind of line there in which we would have a son who then would inherit some of this profit of this land because it's rightfully theirs as well. I don't have to worry about any of that. This land, I will purchase it and it will become mine. This is, this is really, this is the idea. Jeremiah 
32 speaks of the closest relative uh, having this opportunity. Leviticus 25 speaks of this, uh, of this redeemer doing this out of the care uh, of their heart. And then even Leviticus chapter 28, or I'm sorry, 25 again, speaks of the idea that, that really if this man, a close relative, were to be able to buy the land from a relative who's in poverty, there would be a chance for that relative and their descendants to buy it back eventually in a time in which they might be more prosperous or during the year of Jubilee. But that's not going to happen. At this point in his mind, Naomi's old. She's going to die soon. She can't have any more kids. If I buy this land, it's mine for good. And all of its profits come to me. And you begin to see the selfishness of Mr. So-and-so. He wants to buy the land if it benefits him. And so this is the situation at, at play here. And so what happens? Well, at the end of verse four, the line that we all dreaded up to this point, the man says, I will redeem it. I'll take it. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me, right? And so Boaz, not being manipulative, but being patient, working his words with grace, seasoning them with salt, in verse five says, hey, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of, of Naomi, you also acquire... Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And so at this point, he's given some new information. Now, all of a sudden, you got Ruth, who once again is being told to us, and I think I've told you enough times that you realize the author is making a point here. She's a what? A Moabite. She's a foreigner. But once again, you have to understand here, uh, Mr. So-and-so, that the day that you acquire this land, you also acquire Ruth. And it is your obligation. She comes with the land. And it's your obligation to perpetuate the name of her deceased husband, Malon. And that's the, that's, that's the responsibility. And so if you have a son... At this point, he begins to realize, the clock begins to turn here, that any profit from this land will also go to any son that he has with Ruth. But not only that, everything else he owns will also be rightfully given, at least some of it, to this son that he has with Ruth as well. And so now all of a sudden, this whole great business plan seems like it's not going to benefit him as, as much as he wanted, right? So what does he say? He says at this point in response, I cannot redeem it <laughs> for myself. Just kidding, right? Let me change my mind here before this happens too quickly and gets out of, out of my control. He says, and he tells him straightforward at least, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption. You're the next closest kin. You have the opportunity. I can't myself take it. You redeem 
the land, it's yours. You do it. And what we see here now begin to unfold is this redemption, this official redemption actually take place. And we begin to have hope. And we begin to see that, that God has been working through this. And Boaz is committed as a man of integrity to redeeming not only Ruth, but also Naomi and the whole family line. And God is working in this actual redemptive work. We see in verse seven, here's this custom. It's a custom that obviously at the time of the writing of the book was not still in play. And it's similar to what we would see in a Leverite marriage or even a, uh, an exchanging of the land, but it's not exact. And so it's a, it's a custom that went out of play at some point. But here's what the author is telling us. He's telling you about the custom. In the former times in Israel, verse seven, concerning redeeming and exchanging, to confirm a transaction, here's what people would do. They would draw off one of their sandals, give it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So it'd be like if I bought something from you or you bought something from me, and uh, the one who sold it, uh, I took off my shoe if, if I was selling to you, and I gave you my shoe as a symbol that you have purchased this land from me. And, and really, that's kind of a weird exchange. But in addition to that, the, the point is, it's really symbolic that you're able now to walk on this land, right? This land is, is yours now. You have ownership of it. And this is the point here. And so in front of all of the witnesses, in front of all of the 10 elders, you know, as he's gone about this the right way and trusted God, we see here that, that he exchanges this sandal, verse eight, when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon and also Ruth the Moabite, who, by the way, if you didn't know, she's a Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. And look at this selflessness. Look at this integrity, not only for my own pleasure, but to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. She cares about, he cares about the family. He cares about his responsibility as a man. He cares about those who are brokenhearted and weak and whose lives have changed. And he's gonna fulfill his responsibility to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses. And so in this one act of redemption, in this one move of integrity by Boaz, we see the land, Naomi, Ruth, Malon, Kilian, and Elimelech all find really restoration in a sense. And we see this one selfless man who's made all the difference in the world in the lives of these people. What a man. What a man and what an example. Uh, this thing didn't start off right. Uh, this, thing's, this whole story started off with questions and fears. And we see at this point 
that throughout all of this providential work of God, that redemption has come now to this family. And this family will never be the same. This is permanent. This is permanent. And you have to understand all that's behind this. Uh, There was no offspring. There was no hope of provision or protection. This land was going to be overgrown and wasted away and probably taken away from them. And there's this, there's this sense that, I mean, this was utterly hopeless. This was utterly hopeless. But as a family here trusted God, submitted to God, faithfully walked the right way, followed the Lord, didn't take matters into their own hands, wasn't manipulative, trusted God and followed God the way in which they knew God expected. God did this sovereign, providential work out of his own character, because of his own faithfulness, out of his own love and kindness towards these people. And I think we can learn a great lesson from this. It may seem almost reckless for you to trust God in that way, but that's what he wants. He's near to the brokenhearted. He loves those who trust him. As you trust him for all your situations, as you cast all your anxieties on him, the Lord is working on your behalf. Don't think because you're not doing things by your own strength or forcing things to go the way that you want that somehow God is not gonna work in your life. I mean, you're not in control, God is. He's a lot more powerful and in control than you think that he is. The best thing that you can do is walk with God while you're waiting on God. Just walk with God while you're waiting on him. And as the Lord works, you begin to see that He's committed. He's going to work because he's faithful. And really, you can't take these matters into your own hands. And so what a great blessing that we see here. And what it leads to is this great restoration. And really, this is just the practical side of it. This official redemption leads to this great restoration. We see starting now in verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and all the elders, they're celebrating. They're happy for this occasion. They're saying, we're, we're witnesses. We're witnesses of this. This is a great, great work. And we're happy about it. And we confirm it. And we affirm it. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. And without going into all the detail of the story that you can go back to Genesis and read about, I mean, Rachel and Leah, you probably know about them, right? The two wives of Jacob who with their maidservants built the entire house of Israel. May, may this, may your house become like Rachel and Leah. May the whole house of Israel be built upon your house, your offspring. And that's exactly what happens because who comes from their line but the king who? David and from David, the Messiah. What a great blessing that these these witnesses have pronounced on them. It says, who together have built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah. May you be renowned in Bethlehem. In other words, uh, may you be, in a sense, holistically blessed. There's some connotation here of fame, 
of wealth um, and things of that sort. But really what the idea here is, may you be a, a man who is blessed by the Lord. May this house, may this family be blessed by, by the Lord and pronouncement of blessing in the Old Testament is, is significant. And people would fight and, uh, and lie and steal to gain a blessing. And so this is significant here. And it's verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to this woman. I mean, alluding back to this older man and this younger woman and not, woman, and, and not only that, but this was an ancestor of, of Boaz. We see in First Chronicles chapter two and even into Matthew, we see that. But, but really the point here is that there was, Barrenness and no hope of a future and a family. And what the pronouncement of blessing here is, is may God extend the lineage of your family. What a restoration that's taking place. You know, when Ruth was, was married at first to Malon, that was 10 years without a child. That's barrenness. That's barrenness. That's a lack of hope. Naomi's too old. I mean, you just go down the list. This, this thing looked pretty bleak. And this is the pronouncement of blessing on this family. So what happens? Verse 13, Boaz takes Ruth. She becomes his wife. He goes into her. And who gives the conception? The Lord. It's been the Lord in control the whole time. And if you go back to the suffering in chapter one, it was the Lord. Because in order to have this child, it must be who? The Lord. The, the Lord is pointed to here as, as the one who is, is really giving this great blessing and restoration to this family. And the women say in verse 14, they said to Naomi, it's not only Ruth who's being restored. It's not only her life that's changing. It's not only her family line. It's also Naomi. Naomi can't have another child, but she can have a grandchild. And this grandchild can take care of her when she's old, right? And so verse 14, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Who is the redeemer there that is being spoken of? Well, it's not Boaz. It's Obed. It's the child. The child will redeem the life of Naomi as Boaz has redeemed the life of Ruth. This child will be a restorer to Naomi's life, a restorer to her life. He's going to be, she's going to be uh, taken care of by this child. And she will experience the future that she never thought she would have. Their whole lives are being restored here. And so Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, which means servant. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of, of David. 
And what an incredible picture that we, that we see here is that this, this family now is, is experiencing a whole different future because of the redemption that, is, that has taken place. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, the land, the entire future, and the entire future of Israel is different now because of God's great redemptive work here. And I think we can understand that God does aim to restore the details of our lives. And oftentimes I think that, especially with a good heart, we can say, you know what, what really matters is the big picture. What really matters is salvation and sanctification. And that's totally true. That, that's what's most important. But at the same time, you have to understand that God does care about the details of, of your lives. And you have to understand, although it is true that God works sovereignly, we do understand that there is reward. It's not repayment, but it's reward for those who are obedient to him and who are faithful to him. And so my encouragement to you as we see this redemption take place, and then we see the restoration of all these areas of, of their lives, is that you would know that God really does care about the details of your life. He really does do good work in the lives of his people and details that might seem maybe not important. And he really does reward those who are obedient and faithful. You should be motivated by reward. That's, God motivates us by reward in the scripture. You should be obedient and faithful in your life in many different areas, in many different times, in many different circumstances and situations, because you're hopeful of the reward of the Lord in your life. And we see this. I mean, this is to a faithful family who is committed to God, and God did this great work in them. And we close here with just this great picture of faithfulness. I'm not gonna go into all the, the uh, the names and all the backgrounds, you, you can read about them. But one thing that I will say here as we see the faithfulness of God is that this is selective. This is hitting the highlights, these names here at the end. But what the author is wanting you to realize is God has been at work this whole time. And we've said that repeatedly. So by now you've, you've gotten it. But if you're reading this in one sitting, you come to the end of this and you say he's been redeeming, restoring the lives of these people. We wondered if he was involved and the entire time he was working his plan for Israel. He was working his plan for the redemption of the world and every single detail worked out perfectly. I mean, is God sovereign? I mean, this family line is gonna lead directly to David. It's coming from the right tribe, coming from the right place and leading to the right person who would ultimately lead to the Messiah. God is working his redemptive plan. And so what we understand is that God really, really is committed to his people. And he really is committed to working his plan of redemption, not only in their individual lives, but in this greater picture uh, of, of redemption. What an incredible, incredible picture that we see here. And as we close, I wanna to point to you to the fact that this is really a picture of, of what God does in Christ. Uh, this is a true real life story, but this is really a picture of what God does in Christ. He redeems us, right? He, he brings about this purchasing, 
of, of you and your soul by the payment of his own son. And when you don't even know that he's working as a, as a blind, lost person, as Pastor Mike told us earlier, who's walking in darkness, God is doing this redemptive work for those who are his own. He's behind the scene in his sovereignty and providence calling you to himself. And through this redemption, he restores your entire life. That's the point of your life now, is that as you have been called into Christ, God is now doing this redemptive, rest, uh, restorative work in you, working in every aspect, every facet of your life to make you like Christ. And all of this is done because of his great faithfulness, because of his faithfulness. And he's working every plan, every detail, not only in your life, but in the world for his great plan and for his great glory. And so my encouragement to you as we leave this is to rejoice in the gospel, to, to rejoice in a God who is committed and faithful, uh, to be a person of integrity and obedience, looking to the reward of a, of a faithful life because God rewards those who are committed to him. And when times you might feel like God's not involved, you wonder if he's committed to you or if you've taken one step too far and he's left you, that you would trust in his commitment to his people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you for, for your word. It, it's encouraging. It's helpful. And Lord, we want to follow you. We want to learn from this book. We want to be like Boaz, who was one of integrity. We want to be like Ruth and Naomi who faithfully wait on you. Lord, we want to be those who are rewarded because of our obedience. And Lord, we want to be changed every area of our life. And so as we wait on you, we want to be those who are just faithful, who just do what you say, trust you, submit to you and trust your sovereign providence to work in ways that we can't contribute. And Lord, we know that this shows us more than anything, your character. You're committed to your people. You're committed to restoring lives and you're committed to bringing about your great plan of redemption. Lord, we pray that you would do this in the lives of those who are lost that you would restore their lives, that you would redeem them because of your faithfulness and your great love and your great kindness. Lord, there are lost people that we wanna reach. I think about even the, the people who will be reached in New Orleans East. Lord, I, I think about all the people here in Mandeville and Covington who might think that they know you. And Lord, we pray that you would pursue them. You would work in your sovereign ways to draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would restore our lives. Lord, it, it might feel like sometimes we just wanna throw our hands up in the air because we got no idea what you're doing. We feel like we're moving backwards and our lives are becoming less like you and becoming further away from what you want them to be. 
But Lord, help us to just submit to you, be faithful and trust that you are working for our good. And all of this because you're a faithful God. You're a faithful God. No one is counseling you to do your work. You are doing so by your own initiative because of who you are. And that is most clearly seen in the gospel of Christ. Thank you for this encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen.